From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In a lot of ways, people on YouTube are more honest. So in in some ways, like the reason I think I sort of succeeded as a commentator early on is basically I had a very simple idea, which is that when people leave YouTube comments, they're saying what they really think. Hello, welcome to Sir Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm very excited about today's show and guest. It is Natalie Wynn, who is a proprietor, the creator of the ContraPoints channel on YouTube, which is, I think, one of the most fascinating, explanatory political projects that I've seen. She does these really remarkable videos that are looking at things like incels and um, transgender issues and Jordan Peterson and identity politics and dozens of other things that are the foundational cleavages in YouTube politics, and she's able to to build out this both aesthetic and approach, this openness, this ability to explain things in a way that is both sophisticated theory and really approachable, that is something genuinely new out there on the on the field. But the other reason I'm excited about it is I think YouTube is probably the most important political platform going today, and it's one that people over 35 don't pay nearly enough attention to. Politics on YouTube are different. They are split by different things, but they are where people who are under 18 or under 25 are getting their politics. And so what you see happening on YouTube, I think, is what politics in America are going to look like 20 years from now. So being aware of it and taking it seriously and taking seriously those trying to improve it is an important political project. So if you don't think you care about this because you're not on YouTube or you know who cares about what kids are doing, you should care. Um, this is tomorrow's politics today, and it is worth taking it very, very seriously. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Uh, you can give me guest suggestions, feedback, whatever it might be. Again, EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Here is Natalie Wynn. Natalie Wynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let me begin here. How did ContraPoints begin? Well, it was kind of a strange pipe dream that I came up with at a very dark place in life. Um, it was spring 2016, and I had dropped out of my philosophy PhD program a year earlier. I had kind of struggled to find any kind of meaningful work in that year. I was an Uber driver. I was trying to write fiction without any success. I was getting some kind of like, uh, you know, adjunct teaching jobs. I was teaching piano lessons, all kinds of things like that. And I 
had kind of always kind of like, you know, watched YouTube and I'd watched some political content on YouTube, but mostly it was about like, if you went back to 2010 or so, it was all about atheism, which was like, that was what idea people argued about on YouTube. Um, this was back when, you know, Richard Dawkins was a figure that was of cultural significance. And interestingly, a lot of those people who had been involved in that original conversation had sort of turned into these like basically far-right populists is the phrase that we now use. Um, so I would just kind of look at my YouTube homepage and then the suggestions box would be these videos like why feminism is cancer, like Black Lives Matter, the real racists. And I would just be like, hmm, that seems bad. Um, so I kind of like got morbidly curious about this. Right? I was like, there was it seemed to be this, you know, this was like, I guess, a year or two after what's called Gamergate, which I assume most people are familiar with, basically this kind of inter big internet drama event of 2014, where, uh, you know, a bunch of male gamers basically got really angry at feminism. And that is the clearest description of Gamergate I've ever heard. Just for the record, <laughs> the clearest. Uh, I've been thinking about it for a few years, so I'm, I'm glad I've like uh, chiseled it down to the essence. But I think um, that seemed to, to interest. You know, a bunch of people sort of rose to prominence on that wagon. So Milo Yiannopoulos, um, the YouTuber Sargon of Akkad, who's now running for office in the UK. Um, these people basically exploited the momentum of Gamergate. Basically. It was the discovery that there was this demographic of resentful and angry young white men that no one was treating like a political group. Um, but far-right politicians everywhere know that white resentment and male resentment, that is a powerful wellspring from which to draw a political, a reactionary political movement. And Gamergate, I think, made that kind of clear. So some journalists, people like Miley Yiannopoulos, who had no interest in video games whatsoever, you know, suddenly pretended they did and jumped in on it. And that kind of led to this sort of amateur commentary on YouTube, where you have to have no qualifications. There's no gatekeeping. Anyone can say anything. And, um, you know, this is where like people like Alex Jones have thrived for years. And so suddenly this wave of like basically what was called anti-SJW backlash kind of showed up. And I was just kind of obsessed with it at the time. Um, I don't know why I didn't have a lot going for me in, in my life. And I thought these people were so wrong. Uh, and it kind of freaked me out a little bit seeing how much traction they were getting. And no one was paying any attention to it. This is like, I think, you know, maybe one or two news articles had been published at this point that used the word alt-right, but it had been, you know, coined a few years earlier by Richard Spencer. And I basically decided, you know, I, I think I could probably um, find a space for myself in this YouTube politics world as a kind of antagonist of all this kind of stuff, because someone should be speaking against it, is what I thought. And I sort of decided to combine it with all my artistic aspirations. And that's how the channel got started. There's a there's like eight directions I want to go into off of this. First, why did you drop out of the philosophy PhD? Um, I was dying of boredom. I just, <laughs> academia is just not for me. Um, I just found that I was basically just in the state of existential despair eight hours a day, and then I would get home and, uh, you know, 
abuse substances and be lonely. <laughs> and, and I just I just couldn't stand the thought of, of reading close reading Heidegger for the rest of my life. Uh, I just couldn't stand it. Uh, basically, is the short answer. That seems like a great reason to drop out of a philosophy PhD. Yeah, it's it's really not the kind of thing you should do unless you love it. So if you're not loving it, and I was not loving it, don't do it. So let me ask about the new atheists for a minute, because I've tangled in the past couple of years with Sam Harris a bit and sort of run into this world, which I had not checked in on since I was much, much younger and had had a period of yelling at people about biblical contradictions and had not realized that it had taken this unusual turn into a kind of reactionary politics where, you know, a lot of the new atheists had become very, very upset about political correctness and Black Lives Matter. And why did that happen? Like what 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 created the coalition there that we've that we see now? Well, I have exactly the same kind of relationship with this as you do. It sounds I mean, I got into this stuff for a short period when I was like 19 or 20 years old, forgot about it for five years and then sort of took a look back because of the YouTube, you know, suggested videos box essentially and that's when i found it totally reactionary now i think if you go back to like 2007 8 9 uh and look at what all those new atheists were saying i think the the seed of this reactionary movement is right there from the beginning i think that there's this obsession with you know a religion the you know the problem with religion is it's so politically correct and it like keeps you from saying whatever you want and there is this kind of disproportionate focus on Islam and how horrible and savage uh, Muslims were as a religious group. Of course, they insisted that this was purely based on critiquing ideology. But the fact is, it was all a little bit racist, at least a little bit. Um, you know, we had Christopher Hitchens, you know, using new atheism essentially to justify the war in Iraq. We had Richard Dawkins has been posting anti-feminist and sort of vaguely racist anti-Muslim things for for at least a decade, um, this kind of stuff, it, it was there and it just kind of was provoked by the sort of social consciousness of the 2010s. Um, there was a ba- It was a backlash waiting to happen, in other words. You know, one of the things that has always struck me about this world, well, I guess two, one is that it does seem to me there's a personality type within it where you can look at movements or ideas or ideologies that you think are wrong and look for the best in them, try to ask yourself, what can I learn from them? And you can look at them and look for the worst in them, try to ask yourself, how can I destroy them? How can I disprove them? How can I make the people who believe them seem like idiots? And it, it does strike me looking back that a lot of the new atheists really took that approach to, to religion. And that if you're then operating in a world where speaking that way about something that looks obviously ridiculous to you, right? People believing in Skyman, um, and you're getting backlash for it, you're getting yelled at for it, you're getting people are trying to drum you out of polite society, it creates a sensitivity to threat. Um, around speech that then mutates into these other things. You begin attacking Islam um, and Muslims, and then you begin getting called racist. And now you think that anytime anybody gets called racist, that's bullshit. And it just that there is this kind of personality type that emerged around it. I mean, I'm not um, I, I don't believe in any religion now, but my attitude towards it much more is trying to find the good than trying to find the bad. And I often wonder if it's that temperamental divide that isn't actually the core disagreement here. I think that there's definitely something to that. I mean, I think if you look at the structure of what counts as an argument on the internet, what it is like basically on any medium is owning a person, right? Like what you want to do is kind of humiliate them, make them look dumb. It's this kind of like petty uh, dominance game that people like to play. 
probably for psychologically unhealthy reasons, um, you know, that, you know, people do this with strangers on the internet. Uh, and that I think, you know, that definitely is the, the, stru the structure of like a lot of the online, like new atheist discourse and of the kind of, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of always the structure of political discourse on the internet. But I, I agree with you that there's a kind of, yeah, personality type. And I, and I think that's like exactly right that, um, you know, once you become obsessed with this idea of, oh, I should be able to say whatever I want, that's what free speech means, is that like anyone criticizing my speech is some kind of authoritarian, right? Now, when you have, when you have white, these, you know, because it's white men who are the predominant, you know, problem here, like they're being called, someone calls you racist or someone calls you sexist or someone calls something you said racist or something you said sexist or even an idea racist. Um, suddenly that seems, oh, this is authoritarianism. Like, how could this happen to me? Like, how dare you, right? That, that these kinds of responses that we see to anyone trying to basically do any kind of social activism at all. So let me... Let me try to signpost where we are for the audience a bit, because I, I think that I'm sort of unusually interested in this and you're very deep in this. But but I want to I want to try to pull people along here. The reason I think this is important is that YouTube seems to me to be where tomorrow's politics are emerging today. I don't think that there is any platform more influential in terms of where young people develop their political opinions now. I mean, when I go do college speaking, all anybody wants to talk to me about is stuff they saw from Fox on YouTube or about me on YouTube or, you know, it, it, something about YouTube. And when you just look at what young people are watching, it's overwhelmingly YouTube. And the politics ticks on YouTube are really quite different. Um, the, the political divide is really different. And, and so that, walk me through that a bit. How is the political divide on YouTube, the left-right divide on YouTube, how is it different than what somebody would imagine the left-right divide to be if they just watch cable news about national politics? Well, I think on YouTube, the political divide is much more extreme. Um, it kind of resembles Weimar Germany more than it resembles the you know, 2008 election um, in a lot of ways where you have like true leftism, like communists and anarchists. And then you have like basically the threshold of fascism, you know, where the far right narrative is all centered around protecting the borders of our country from invaders, you know, purging degenerate elements from within, all this kind of like far right, um, basically fascist kind of thinking. And you're totally right that this is where young people are getting their politics. Um, you know, and it's not necessarily just from political YouTube, which is still a pretty small world. The bigger world is the kind of entertainment world that exists around it. So, um, for example, gaming channels, um, these are incredibly popular. The most, I mean, PewDiePie, I think he still has the most subscribers. He's a, a gaming channel and he just plays video games and talks, um, 60 million subscribers or something like that. And, you know, if you talk to, talk to anyone who has kids, who has um, especially boys who are between the ages of like 10 and 18. And they'll all tell you, oh yeah, all my son does is sit around watching these YouTube video game channels. Well, a lot of the YouTube video game channels actually have kind of political content sort of beneath the surface. And a lot of that content is pretty far right. Um, you know, we know PewDiePie, while well, he's consistently getting himself into basically controversy over the fact that he will sh scream the n-word while playing a video game or over the fact that he you know years ago he like i guess pay, you know paid a couple men to hold signs that said kill all jews you know this is all and he's you know this is all represented oh it's just edgy humor it's just jokes of course it's just memeing but there's a political theme to these jokes and memes and i don't think that's an accident and i think it has consequences um you know the, another uh 
you know, just popular YouTuber, not as particularly associated with politics, John Tron, a few years ago, came out with a lot of these sort of, you know, voicing these concerns that are sort of similar to the concerns about, you know, why are white people being replaced in our own countries? Like, why do we have to be diverse and other countries don't have to be diverse? You know, these kinds of like basically Nazi talking points. Um, but, you know, not not to say that these people are all Nazis, because I, I don't think they generally are, but there are Nazi talking points that have been sort of honed over decades to be sort of persuasive um, to normal people and to sort of fly under people's radar you know, most people's ability to, to, to detect uh, overt racism. And I, these talking points have just spread across YouTube. Um, so that's definitely something that worries me. It's honestly uh, an even grimmer portrayal of it than I was ready for. It. Um, I, I do. Mm. I, I think your point is very well taken that a huge amount of YouTube is not uh, self-evidently political, but is fundamentally very political. But But the other thing that really strikes me as I dip in and out of it is... If you're looking at, I don't know, cable news or you go back, say, 10 years in, in American politics and you ask me, how do you tell if somebody's on the left or the right? The answer is, well, where do they stand on expanding Medicare? Right. They may have all kinds of other positions, but like raising taxes to expand Medicare, that is going to give you a really clear view. And on YouTube politics, it doesn't seem to me that that matters at all. What matters is where do you stand on SJWs and political correctness and these these issues around, you know, what I think of as issues around power in a diversifying nation. And that that is the cut. I mean, you get very extreme versions of the cut. You get lighter versions of the cut, but that it's a kind of new. I don't exactly want to call it new, but it is a different ideological structure that is struggling to express itself that doesn't quite have its expression in national party politics, but it's creating wholly new coalitions and wholly new ways of kind of understanding for this next generation of what is left and what is right and what puts somebody on one side or the other. Does that seem right to you or fair? That seems completely fair. Um, I remember like a 10 years ago when I was an undergraduate, um, yeah, the debate was all about economics. On the left, it was Occupy Wall Street. On the right, it was libertarianism, basically um, Ron Paul and Ayn Rand. Um, well, that's all gone now. Now it's, I mean, it's not all gone, but it's just, it's just, it's really taken a backseat to what is this kind of culture war, as you say, then where the main sort of buzzwords in play are social justice warriors, are political correctness, uh, you know, things like that. And that is, yeah, that's absolutely the central theme of politics for, I think, millennials and for Gen Z even more. And one of the things that I think is seductive about all this is, and it goes back to the point you were just making about kind of very fundamental questions about what kind of country are we going to be? How white as a country are we going to be? In politics, there's so many gatekeepers and so much ideological superstructure and parties and institutions that they're pretty tight boundaries on the debate. A lot has already been figured out by the time you get to it. But on YouTube, and I think it, the way most people actually think about politics, very little is figured out and very little is taken for granted. So you come in, you know, you're 13 or 14 or 15, and the questions that are being asked attached to political themes are much more fundamental. I mean, Jordan Peterson to me is a fascinating figure because in on one level, his topic is about how to live a meaningful life. It's attached to a very reactionary form of politics, but he's also trying to give people guidance and counsel on topics that are much more important to them than marginal tax rates in a way that you just really don't see in, in politics elsewhere. I see that a little bit less on the left on, on YouTube, but, but it does seem to me there's something there about 
so little is taken for granted that on the one hand you get a much more you can get a much more dangerous form of political rhetoric and debate because there's just no boundaries on it but on the other hand you can understand why it's just much more interesting to people who are trying to figure out their own way and theory in the world yeah there is that element to it i think that well in a lot of ways people on youtube are more honest so in in some ways like the reason I think I sort of succeeded as a commentator early on is basically I had a very simple idea, which is that when people leave YouTube comments, they're saying what they really think. And I had a hard time convincing people of that at first because everyone was telling me, no, they don't. These are trolls. They're just joking. They're just trying to make you angry. And of course, sometimes that's true. But I was like, why is, you know, I, I remember that the, I moved to Baltimore right after the 2015 uprising. And I remember just seeing like footage of the up, you know, the rioting on YouTube and the comments, it was just, just overwhelmed by the most like vicious, like primal racism imaginable. And I was thinking, this isn't trolling. People think this. And I think that taking YouTube comments seriously in a way, like allowed me to get ahead of the curve as a commentator and and basically foresee a lot of the stuff that ended up leading to the outcome of the 2016 election. So YouTube is a little, is still exciting to me in that way where it's like, you know, you don't have to deal with all the, basically the bullshit talking points of say the Republican party. Like, you know, back in 2010 or so, like there was the Tea Party, right? And the it was a pretty common take on the left uh, that the Tea Party was a racist reaction movement. But we were sort of like, no one had like hard evidence of that because all their talking points were about taxation. And um, I think that what you have on YouTube now, I, I mean, I do think in retrospect that it was largely a racist reaction. It wasn't really about taxation. But now you can, now on YouTube, you know, or on the internet, you can just say it's about race. Like that's what people are just arguing about now. We're not pretending it's about taxation. We're talking about what the, the real issue in some ways, which is like, yeah, who gets control of this country? Uh, who's allowed to be here even? And part of that goes to people's, yeah, a very, it goes to very fundamental, primal kind of suspicions and resentments and fears. What's the first video that you made where you felt, I'm breaking through on this, that, that, that maybe I am figuring out a way to do it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I guess it was, it was, there was no single video, but I know like the first couple videos I did didn't really work. Um, and then I sort of went through this experimental period, you know, where I was basically kind of like feeling out a style that worked. Because when I first started on YouTube, my videos got just overwhelmingly downvoted by people who disagreed with me, who are my, who are my own audience. And uh, basically I sort of figured, discovered this kind of ironic pose. So that I don't use it as much as I used to because now a lot of my audience does agree with me. But back in the early days, I was in the unusual situation. I've rarely seen anyone else in this situation of being a YouTuber with an audience that basically is against you. <laughs> and How did you get in that situation? I had hijacked the audience of these right-wing creators, essentially, at first. That was my audience at first, was was second-hand audience I got from being in their related videos because I was basically getting myself into the same algorithm that recommends right-wing content. And so I knew that they, they were against me. Um, so at the time, I guess that that involved a lot of things. It involved, one, being able to show in terms of how I was writing these videos that I did truly understand 
um, not just sort of intellectually, but also emotionally, where these people were coming from, why are they feeling the feelings they feel? And some of it I was able to relate to myself because when I was in grad school, like some of the like student activism um, among undergraduates and grad students really did turn me off. Like I really hated it. (laughs) And so I, I understood why someone would. And I think that that helped me sort of relate or be relatable. And then the other issue was, you know, my YouTube channel sort of tracks a kind of uh, gender journey. And I, you know, I, as I transitioned um, male to female on YouTube throughout all this nonsense, and like part of that has been, you know, how do I present this truth about myself that I know is going to cause me to be, you know, hated and people are going to be disgusted and are going to try to humiliate me. Uh, well, not if I do it myself first, was my initial thought, where I was kind of presenting a parody of myself, presenting myself almost as a, a scary monster at first. That turned out to be very destructive f- for me. So I stopped doing that after a while. But at first, it was um, it was like a you know rhetorical thing I was doing, basically presenting myself as a gender monster. Can you tell me what you mean by that, presenting yourself as a gender monster? Well, I just kind of, you know, this was before before I transitioned. I kind of leaned in at first to this um, kind of like scary cross-dresser, like Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror kind of persona. The idea was, oh, wearing women's clothes. There's probably some bodies in my basement, you know, like like that 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 kind of um, horrible stereotype. And now I do it. I do some. I do something similar in a different way by you know acting like a camp drag queen. But you know, a lot of this is unhealthy on my part. I know. But it does help me communicate to an audience. But a lot of it doesn't. I mean, I don't want to say whether it's healthy or not. I, I I don't know you. But I'll say two things. One is that I think of myself as a connoisseur of explainer videos in journalism. And I think you do just some of the most remarkable explanatory work anywhere on the Internet. I mean, it's really you really start with an audience of where they are and then slowly bring them sort of through the way you understand a topic and keep representing different voices who, in an unusual way, you embody yourself throughout the the, the story to, to get them there. It's a really, really cool approach. Um, but the other thing that you've talked about uh, is that you say, I think you've said that your work is serious answers to trolley questions. And that's something a lot of people don't do. They don't take like simple questions seriously or trolly or offensive questions seriously. And you kind of need to. You kind of got to start where people actually are. And, and so I'm curious where you where you developed the the tendency to do that. What were what were the times when you moved from talking in a secondhand way about other people to actually going to what you decided the core question the audience really had was? Yeah. So I first used that phrase. Um, well, first of all, thank you. I'm glad you, I'm glad you think the explanation videos are good. Uh, I, I first used the phrase serious answers to troll questions in this video I did called Are Traps Gay? Are Traps Gay is a transphobic meme that basically is very popular on 4chan where you basically ask, like, is male attraction to a trans woman or to a, you know, transvestite or to a, you know, anime girl who, you know, maybe has some male anatomy, like, is, is, you know, what is, you know, what is the sexuality of that? And it's kind of a troll debate. It's supposed to be a joke. It's supposed to be a meme. But I think it's just obvious to me that it's not just a meme. It also represents a real struggle with a kind of anxiety about this kind of sexual attraction that many Otherwise, not otherwise, but many heterosexual men uh, 
experience and something that, you know, most are not comfortable with because society has not given them a good way of understanding it. So I think that, you know, the meme is there for a reason. And to me, the the, the best way to do this public service of basically alleviating the anxiety around attraction to trans women in particular, that anxiety turning out to be extremely dangerous for trans women. It's something that has to be done not on the terms of a militant trans activist, but it has to be done on the terms of a 4chan shit poster, at least at the beginning, right? Because you have to to invite them in to the conversation. And so that's what I tried to do with that video. Um, it's not the first time I've done that. It basically mirrors the same thing I did when I was taking, you know, looking at all this ironic uh, Nazism, basically, from 2016, 2017, and being like, I bet, you know, this actually represents real anxieties, fears, and hatreds along the lines of race. Well, I think Our Traps Gay represents real anxieties, confusion, self-loathing along the lines of sexuality. There's a, a an idea that I hear a lot in, in commentary um, that it's not my job to educate you. You know, this will be somebody with a big audience who's getting, I would say, trolly questions or shitty questions or shitty feedback. And they'll say, you know, it's not my job to educate you to not be racist or transphobic or a sexist or whatever or whatever it might be. And obviously, on one level, it's true. It's not you, it's nobody's job to educate anybody else unless it literally is your job to be an educator. But it, it does seem to me that something that is embedded in your work is a view that it kind of is your job, that, that you're willing to take on that role of I'm going to try to take you from where you are, whatever you think of me, and like do that in both professional, but also, I guess, in some ways, emotional labor of trying to get you to the other side. And that that seems to me to be something that the left, in some ways, has almost adopted an ideology at times of not doing. Um, like it's developed a sort of self-congratulation around not doing that that fundamental persuasive work in a way that I, I don't think in the long run is going to be is going to be good for, for for the sort of ideas people are trying to represent here. Yeah, so I agree with you um, mostly, but I, I have very mixed feelings about this, I guess, because you're right. I have basically decided, you know what, actually, this is my job. And it literally is my job. I literally do get paid to do to educate them. That's 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 what I do. Um, I, I'm actually, I, I totally sympathize with a lot of the people who say it's not my job to educate you on Twitter or whatever, because it's not your job to attempt to have futile conversations with every troll who's asking you these annoying questions because that's, you know, thankless, difficult, time-consuming work that doesn't pay off a lot of the time. Um, so I understand. It's also exhausting, as you say, emotionally laborious. Um, but I find that it's worth going through all of that, especially when you can make, you know, I'm not just arguing with, I don't have these arguments one-to-one -one with people on Twitter or in the YouTube comments section. I don't, I'm not doing that. I'm making a text or a piece of media that can be watched by hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And that, you know, to me, makes it worth all the emotional labor and all the, in some ways, kind of painful process of having to, like, think about yourself all the time and the way that someone who hates you thinks about you. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. 
In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. You talked earlier about how when you were starting out making videos, you presented yourself as a kind of gender monster. Um, and something that strikes me, at least in your more recent work, is you managed to present your own identity and experiences in a very inclusive way. Um, in, in the incels video, you do something that I certainly wasn't expecting when I clicked on the video, which is you offer a pretty extended analogy to the way that incels are operating in closed communities on the internet to some of the communities that you frequented when you were beginning to transition and the the, the tendency to go somewhere where you know you're going to be um, attacked, to the tendency to go somewhere where you know people are going to confirm your worst fears about yourself. And I'm curious about how you think about presenting your identity, because I constantly hear people say that identity politics is an exclusionary form of politics. And when people are arguing from experience, they're they're arguing in a way that means other people can't uh, access it. But I see in you and and a lot of other people who I think do this well, the ability to make identity something that, that is inclusive, that people don't have the same experiences. But if you take experiences seriously, you can see resonance that maybe can help you bridge to somebody's lived life. And And so I'm curious how you do that and how you developed the style of doing that, given where you started. Well, I think some of it is that like I just have this desire to be understood and I don't want to be this confusing thing for people. You know, I want them to feel like to, to be able to empathize with what I feel. There is sometimes this idea that's expressed um, that like, oh, like men could just never understand what, what women go through. White people can never understand what a black person in America goes through. In some literal sense, that's true. Like you can't actually experience it yourself, but like... Humans are mostly capable of empathy to a degree. I mean, that's why novels work, right? You're not literally these characters, but you can kind of be there and feel with with a character. And I think that part of the way that identity politics can be inclusive is that it can make these marginalized experiences or oppression experiences. I don't see why these can't be sort of made comprehensible to outside groups. And I think that sometimes it can be, you know, there's analogies across group experiences and sometimes there aren't and it's important to acknowledge uh, 
both those facts. But to me, it's it's much, much more politically helpful anyway to kind of make that empathetic appeal. That is to say, like, I don't see why why insisting like I'm incomprehensible to you. Don't even try to understand me. You know what I mean? I don't see. I don't. That seems to me like it's just a wall. Whereas saying like, listen, here's what I'm going through, and and if you can find an enticing way to say that, like, that seems to me a much more productive approach to these kinds of conversations. How did the audience's reaction to you change as you transitioned? Um, yeah, it's it's something I'm still trying to get my head around. I think that. You know, when when I was being perceived as male, people sort of expect a combatant, a debater, right? It's, you know, it's a battle, whereas no one really wants that from a woman. And so I have found that, you know, it, it changes how I behave on the internet. I, I never would, no one even invites me to do debates anymore, but even, even if they did, I don't think I'd do it. And... I know that the, the gender thing sort of changes, you know, it's increasingly, I think, making it a little bit harder for me to connect to, like, young white men. This is kind of the, you know, this is kind of the way that my channel is framed when my work is covered in the press. It's like, oh, ContraPoints is this YouTuber who's de-radicalizing de young white men. Well, I think my ability to do that may have an expiration date that's approaching, in part because it's getting harder and harder for me to, I just can't pass myself. Well, for, for a long time, I've been able to pass myself off really as one of them because um, I'm not one of them. And I increasingly think that it's harder for them to empathize with me because I just don't, you know what I mean? I just seem so foreign to them. So I am sort of struggling with what exactly I'm going to do with my channel as that continues, you know, that I don't, I think that trend's only going to continue. I always found the coverage of your work as a de-radicalization project interesting. Um, one, because it was never clear to me if we knew how many people were being de-radicalized by anything, your work or anything else, but also because a lot of people don't start radicalized. It seems to me that a lot of people are just looking around trying to find things, um, and and they're particularly in these spaces and particularly when you're dealing with a very young audience, there I don't want to call nobody's a blank slate, but that it's not like you're trying to pull everybody back from the alt-right. You're you're trying to give people alternatives when they search a word like incel or they search something like identity politics. So I guess my question for you is, is that so much of a problem? I mean, does it need to be about the hardest cases or can it just be work for people trying to understand a world that is confusing and <laughs> overwhelming and um that you know, oftentimes when they try to look into the stuff that is being talked about in the press, what they get is either kind of clueless coverage or um, very, very far right coverage. Yeah, I totally agree in terms of being a little bit confused by this characterization of me as de-radicalizing the alt-right. Because I mean, for, first of all, journalism that's written about me tends to be about, about YouTube. Journalism about YouTube in general tends to be about a year behind. So... I, you know, I haven't done a video that's addressed to the alt-right in, in, in more than a year. And I, I think that it's true that really the, the persuasive target of my videos is not someone who's like deeply entrenched into some kind of hate movement. No, not at all. It's really like the average college student. Like these videos are sort of, imagine them being watched in dorms. There's sort of some mix between like, I don't know, the way people would watch Rocky Horror Picture Show and the way they would, um, you know, have like arguments about politics in that kind of setting. And I, I just, 
don't like actually that I'm sort of treated as like, oh, this resource that's so great for young white men. I mean, so <laughs> first of all, that's not even like, if you look at my analytics, who actually watches my videos, I mean, it's nearly 50% women. No one talks about what women think of my videos. No one thought to ask. Uh, you know, when I do meet, YouTube meetups and things, probably more than 50% of the people who show up are LGBT. No one knows what they think of my videos. No one thought to ask because I'm always this like this secondary character in a story that stars a racist male protagonist. That, I, th I think it's such a great way of putting it. I mean, I, I do think that's also just a problem with how we're reporting on YouTube. Uh, again, so I have a slightly weird vantage point on YouTube because I'm not a YouTube creator in the sense that you are, but Vox is really big on YouTube. We have 6 million um, subscribers, roughly. It's probably our biggest platform in terms of time spent. I've made a bunch of videos that have done really well there. And so I have a real sense of how big it is and how important it is. And, and we think about it all the time. But one thing that just seems true to me is that the dimensions of the left and the right on YouTube have kind of tracked uh, talk radio or radio, which is forever people would puzzle over why in radio did you have all these conservative talkers and then liberals all listen to NPR or, you know, um, some some other kind of news oriented outlet. And it does seem to me a little bit you've seen a replication of that in YouTube where you do have really, really big, successful news-esque um, projects out there. I think Vox is one, but you have Vice, you have in a different way, the Young Turks. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff going on there that looks like pretty broad news channels. And then you have this ecosystem of right-wing talkers, your Jordan Petersons, your Ben Shapiro's, your, it goes really quickly into people, your Rubin reports, you know, people who um, are, are, are developing, you know, it's an, an ecosystem that looks a lot like talk radio did, conservative talk radio did before it. And I don't really know why this keeps replicating itself in, in different mediums. It, I, I've never really come across an explanation for it that makes a ton of sense to me. But it means that there's something going on on the right that the mainstream media doesn't understand. And so it, it situates the entire thing as that, as opposed to, to seeing it as an ecosystem that has a lot of interlocking features, um, but that they all need to be taken somehow as a whole, um, and particularly on YouTube, where they end up colliding with each other in ways that they didn't in previous forms of media that weren't as algorithmic or weren't comment-driven or didn't have this response culture or or any of the rest of it. I, I know it's a little bit of a, a, a long uh, riff there, but, but one, I guess I'm curious, does that actually seem true to you as a description of how it looks in YouTube, or is that something that is coming from an outsider's perspective that's just, I'm trying to overfit it to an experience I already know better? Yes, it actually it seems very true to me. Um, I think that the, the right-wing talk radio analogy is very good. I mean, that basically describes the way channels like Sargon of a Cat or, you know, the Rubin Report or any of these, these channels will function. And I think that it's also true that there is this kind of weird minimization of the left media that does exist on YouTube. Um, I think that, you know, what's now called left tube, essentially me and a few friends of mine, like <laughs> was what counts as left tube. It's not by, not by any means just the sudden appearance of the first left-wing content on YouTube. Like, as you say, the Young Turks have been doing it since basically the beginning of, of YouTube. Um, there's been vloggers who spoke about more the kind of social justice kinds of things like cat black this is going way back to like you know 2014 2015 or, or earlier um and so what's new is this particular style of video essay making that responds explicitly to the right wing stuff 
That's the only thing that's new. Um, there's, of course, been left-wing content. There's always been left-wing content on YouTube in one form or another. One, one thing I wonder about, is it fair to say that the right-wing YouTube operates more as an, an interlocking ecosystem than left-wing YouTube? They seem to sort of have these shows, they're all going on each other's shows, that they're all, they, they, they share audience and seem to operate um, as a kind of community in a way that doesn't, certainly isn't true among the, the like the inheritors of like NPR YouTube that I'm talking about with say like Vox and Vice don't spend a lot of time, you know, cross, you know, going on each other's shows. But it doesn't even seem to me to be as true among or, or at least is developed among um, left-wing YouTube. There doesn't seem to be analogies to things like the Rubin Report, like Crooked Media and Chapo. And, you know, you can imagine a way it could look, but it doesn't seem to have developed that way. Um, or is that, again, just something I'm missing on the outside? Um, there's Chapo. There's the Majority Report. There's There, there are, yeah, as you say, like um, platforms kind of like that, but... It's true that it's it's always seemed like less a, not so much of an ecosystem as um as the right wing uh, YouTube, but I think that's actually changing. Um, when I started, certainly there was not much of a left wing ecosystem at all, apart from like a community of feminist vloggers. But now, you know, what's called left tube or bread tube has kind of emerged, and I think it is an ecosystem now. There's a lot of like subreddits that kind of come, you know that are sort of community hubs. There's Facebook meme groups that sort of comment on all of us. And a, a number of us are sort of in touch with each other and we'll do like in, in small ways collaborations, like we'll do voice acting for each other and, and things like that on YouTube. So it, it exists. I would say the word ecosystem is not inappropriate for that. Can you tell me how BreadTube got the name BreadTube? <laughs> I just don't know. And I've seen it around and I've been wondering. So it comes from... Um, the Conquest of Bread, the book by um, Kropotkin, um, like an anarchist uh, classic. And so I, it never would have occurred to me to call it BreadTube, but people who are sort of more involved in the like kind of theoretical far left than I am came up with this name. It's amazing to me how much just actual esoteric uh, ideological and social theory is back operating within you know, at least near to popular discourse now. I mean, it, it as somebody who's kind of a nerd for a lot of this stuff, I find it lovely, but also I'm really stunned to see people discussing tankies and neoliberalism and anarchism. And it seems to me that there is such like through the way Reddit and social media work, and then I guess the way YouTube works, there's such a, an emphasis on creating distinctions in communities. And it's just created this explosion of interest in like ideological subgroupings that had been completely forgotten. I mean, I, I started in politics in the early aughts and it just didn't have this flavor. Like if you were if you were a kid like looking to get into politics then you couldn't you couldn't find these incredibly fine-grained subgroupings to to become part of and then begin memeing yourself into a community with. I don't really know long run if this kind of fracturing is good or bad, but it really feels different to me than when I was growing up in it. Yeah, well this is the left for you. It's very nerdy. It's very divided into these little factions. I mean, it's true. It doesn't resemble anything I've really seen in to having like a large community of people discussing it in my lifetime. I've had conversations with my mom, actually, where she kind of was adjacent to some leftist communities in the 60s and 70s, where there would be these vicious fights between Trotskyists and Orthodox Marxists and so on. It's basically that again, you know? It's um, 
it's yeah this revival of this old thing from you know the, the, the same kinds of conversations that happened you know maybe in this country in like the 1930s and in the 1960s and 70s but not since then um except you know maybe in really obscure corners of academia where this stuff was kind of uh, kept alive but now yeah it's 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 weird to see Trotsky and Kropotkin and you know the, the morality of the Soviet Union and all this kind of stuff. Is it really communist? Like all these de old debates just happening again, totally fresh with this young generation of people. That's why at the beginning of our conversation, I said it's like Weimar Germany or something. Like you have like communists and you have fascists fighting <laughs> in the streets. Well, they're fighting on Reddit. Time time is a flat circle, but possibly getting um, uh, more <laughs> memed. Uh, the, yeah. So we've talked here a bit about the kind of ideology and, and theory of your videos, but but what about the aesthetics of them? I mean, you've really created a phenomenally fascinating look to them, and they have really interesting framing. How do you think about when you're when you decide you want to approach something like incels or um, uh, uh, terps? How do you decide? the form that video is going to take. Like, how do you, I, I can I can kind of work backwards to how you come up with a script, but I have a lot more trouble thinking about how you come up with the look and how you come up with the frame and how you come up with the other characters. Like, what is your process for that? Well, this is my real passion. And the reason I'm able to actually do this is that I, you know, this, all this awful politics stuff that I hate, um, you know, gives me this way of doing the stuff that I love doing, which is writing characters and designing costumes and sets and things. So uh, when it comes to like how I would form or structure a script, I mean, often it depends on like, so I've like, I've done over the course of my career, two videos that are about um, TERFs. One is just called TERFs and the second is my most recent video called Gender Critical. Uh, TERFs is framed as a, as a dialogue between characters. And the point of that video is really more to just sort of parody this conversation or parody some of the people involved in this conversation. Whereas I decided with a gender critical one, no, I want to address fence sitters like face to face. So in terms of like how a video is framed, like if I want to speak directly to an audience, I'm going to put myself front, like in the middle of the frame, I'm going to face the camera and speak like I'm speaking to someone sitting across a table from me. Um, whereas if what I'm doing is making some kind of more like meta point about the commentary itself, like if I'm talking about the discourse, then I will show discourse ha happening by having, um, like in my video about climate change, I show like this, you know, this sort of futile conversation between a lazy climate change denier who just doesn't want to think about it and a, and a sort of scientist getting increasingly exasperated by the desperate situation that we're in. Um, because in that video, sort of part of what I'm showing is like, the failure of reason to communicate what needs to be communicated. And that's part of the message that I'm getting across. So in that sense, like the form of the video will serve whatever the point I'm making. One of the things you play with in a really interesting way in the videos is just mood. Um, which is something that I think is not thought of very often in political commentary at all. Like, what is the mood of this political commentary? But, you know, in the insults video, for instance, almost the entire video, you're swirling a glass of wine. And why, right? What is, what is the mood you decided to, to create in that video and, and, and why did you think it would be valuable for that discussion? Well, it's hypnotic. It's seductive, um, right? You're, you're making this video where you're, t you're talking about sexual frustration. Well, you entice an audience into that by, by you know, taking them into this neon lit bordello 
were sequin draped transsexuals swirling a glass of wine. Like that's, <laughs> that's the uh, you know that's the mood, I guess. I oftentimes like it's not. I don't have like a, an explicit idea of what the you know what the what the mood I'm going to be. I don't you know. I just have this kind of intuition about what seems right. And for incels, I don't know. Just the like the low light, the bright red, like. It just seems to to me to like it felt like the incel conversation feels like just this kind of uh, uh, desperate sexuality with with sinister undertones. <laughs> I'll admit something here I've not admitted before, at least publicly, which is I don't think that there are there's no professional thing I've ever done where I have felt more uncertain and worried more about how to dress and making YouTube videos. Like everything else in my professional life, somebody else has made the decision for me of how to dress. You know, if I go on cable news or, you know, I'm going to a meeting or I'm just working at the office, I can like look around. But if you look at my YouTube videos, you'll see somewhere I'm like in a black T-shirt because I'm trying to seem less formal and somewhere I'm like kind of in professional clothing because maybe it seems weird to be informal. And it like there's such an interesting um, dynamic there where trying to get uh, trying to like signal like the right relationship with the audience is so important um and to me at least is so confusing um and one of the things i just so appreciate about your videos is that you just blow the whole thing up you create a completely new context right you're not fitting into anybody else's uh context and so like you come in and like now you're in the world of contra points and it, it sort of seems more effective than my um extremely um inept uh wardrobe choices but but in general it also seems important for the space that is so much about relationship with the audience and authenticity and i don't know there's something intimate about podcasting too but but youtube in particular that i think foils a lot of folks who are more um used to who are more used to mediums where a lot of those communication and audience relationship decisions have already been made for them yeah, I think my videos aesthetically are some ways very much not in the spirit of YouTube, which is, I think, a spirit of authenticity or the illusion of it, right? Where I think a lot of what's appealing about YouTube is that you feel like you're just looking into a person's bedroom, like a real person, and you're looking into their life. And I think in my videos, there's sort of this artificiality, which is is obvious you know it's not i'm not trying to pretend like oh just switch the camera on guys like hey welcome to my life like no <laughs> like it's theater obviously there may as well be a curtain that opens at the beginning sometimes there is um and i think that you know that's just the way i prefer to to work my videos are, are very scripted a lot of times i have characters and i don't pretend that i'm just like just me sitting here telling you about my life like like no it like this is like a show and that's different than most YouTube is. I want to ask you about the aesthetics of right-wing YouTube, because there is this right-wing YouTube idea about debate and reason that whenever I come across it, it seems to me to be an almost aesthetic posture. It's people screaming at college students for reasons I, I never fully understand um, why there are so many videos of people dunking on college students. Uh, but in general, there is this performance of rationality totally untethered from the quality of argument or any actual views about rationality that I find really fascinating. Um, I'm not saying it's never been around before. It certainly has been. But it has really taken over this kind of, you know, 
hyper combative, like debate me culture um, where the debates are not in any serious way moderated. Nobody has any rules for actually finding truth. Nothing is scored. Um, but that there's something about the performance of it that has become really appealing to a lot of people and has become really quite dominant. And, and I'm curious how you how you decode it. Well, I think growling about logic in a deep whiskey voice is like it's like straight male culture. <laughs> like I think that I think I, I totally I totally have always characterized it like you said as an as an aesthetic. Like there's an aesthetic of reason, which often involves, uh, for some reason, speaking really deeply and close to the microphone, and which involves, you know, kind of posing as this kind of cynical, um, detached unemotional, masculine person who's sort of sneering at, uh, you know, hysterical women, uh, you know, angry minorities, things like that. You know, it's funny to me when I had my debate with Sam Harris, one of the things that ended up causing him a lot of trouble with his audience was that particularly in our emails, but also a little bit in our debate, people felt he got too upset. That they, they were upset at him for for having like lost a pose of rationality. And I was so struck by how much the style points mattered in that audience. Like the fact that I seem kind of like like level-headed and reasonably friendly was really important to them in a way that seemed unmoored from any of the any of the the substance of the debate itself. And and I watch Jordan Peterson stuff sometimes, and it's such a combative it doesn't seem particularly rationalistic to me what he's doing. It's interesting and often it's even quite smart, but it's not, you know, rationalism, but there is this kind of pose. And I take your point that it's very masculine, but it also seems to me to be a kind of expression of like the powerless looking for power, right? Not, and I don't want to say literally powerless, but but people who feel they're on the wrong side of something, like looking for champions who can represent them out in the world, looking for people who are more controlled than they are, looking for, you know, in an, in an age we're moving into AI and computers, looking for people who speak more like computers and in some ways like people. Um, I, I can't quite figure out, I think there's something important in it that I don't fully understand, but it also just seems to me really weird because it's such an evident performance. Um, it's such a clear thing that, you know, you can learn. And if, and as you say, like, you know, if you have the deep voice and you're able to talk close to the microphone and all the rest of it that you can put on, and yet it, it, it continues to have such potency and such power. Well, it is very insecure, isn't it? I, I definitely see that strain of it. There's this incredible insecurity to that kind of pose. But I think like masculinity is kind of insecure. Masculinity is afraid of being humiliated or being uh, cucked is the alt-right terminology that gives away a little more than I think they intended to. Um, and I think that for men, there's like a real thing going on where men are kind of trying to figure out, uh, straight men anyway, are trying to figure out like, where are we going to fit into this changing world where the rules governing relationships between men and women seem to be kind of changing. The power dynamics between men and women in the workplace seem to be changing. Uh, you know, what is going to be the place for masculinity? What is going to be the place for men in this world when all these changes are done? And that, I think, creates anxiety. Um, some of this, I, I think, I can I can empathize with. Uh, and some of it, I think, is it's terribly misguided. But I think that that probably is one of the things that's driving the kind this kind of like hyper masculine posturing right and it seems to be part of the appeal of people like Jordan Peterson who have like a sort of masculinist 
wisdom that they kind of dole out to these these boys who are afraid about what their place in life is going to be. What's with all the dunking on college students? I, I've actually always wanted to ask some people about this because to me, if you're a professional political commentator or a celebrated academic or, you know, just somebody who's good at this and is an adult at it and has been doing it for years. The idea that when you're the one controlling the microphone, that you'd be able to humiliate a college student, like the idea that you would do it seems horrible to me. It, it seems like self-discrediting. Yeah. <laughs> and yet there's this insane ecosystem of people cutting up videos of these guys, like, you know, negating, annihilating, destroying college students. Yeah, tenured professor destroys angry undergraduate. And I don't know if it reflects like people having bad experiences in colleges or what, but but what what is that? Can you can you help me understand it? Well, I think that it's very successful with audiences. I mean, I think that some of this stuff comes from stereotypes that have some basis in truth. A lot of college students are kind of ideologically you know, they've recently awakened to, you know, these kinds of social consciousness. And so there's a sort of overzealousness, a kind of degree of emotive certainty and uh, presumptuousness that, that sort of exceeds experience and, and knowledge in some ways. And I think that kind of, you know, this like snob of a you know, self-important college student who's like lecturing everyone about how racist they are. Like everyone kind of hates this 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 archetype of a person, right? Um, but the archetype of the person ends up kind of replacing any actual people. And now it's just this like symbolic ritual that has to repeat be repeated over and over again of tenured professor destroys teary undergraduate, which I think is not a good trope at all. Um, and I agree, it's like incredibly embarrassing to watch in some ways. Like why is this being upheld as a good thing. Some of the popularity of it probably seems to be from people wanting sort of like revenge against against that like, you know, that stuck up college feminist who made me feel like an asshole once, you know, I think it's like that kind of thing. One of the things I wonder about it, again, given the demographics of YouTube, is how much it, it's reflecting an audience of people who are in college or were recently in college or in high school and are going to college and find themselves feeling in the minority, find themselves feeling like the ones who are being accumulated in class or being told they can't say the thing they want to say. And so what you're seeing is a is a power performance play out that while it looks very strange to someone like me, matters to them because in their lives, these college like as a college student, the other college students, the bulk of the college students, um, you know, the ideological trends on campus really are powerful. And so this is just a, a difference of a platform catering to a different age demographic, maybe? Oh, I think that you're 100% on it. Like, I think that, you know, if you're raised a middle-class white boy and you're one of the smarter students at your high school, you're treated like this perfect angel, you show up at college, uh, you know, now you have to go to sensitivity training where you're being uh, reprimanded for, you know, your racist uh, implicit biases. You are, you know, being sort of forced in classes to confront things that make you uncomfortable, like the fact that, you know, you have this privilege in the world that is a result of you know, gross injustice, or the fact that there are other people who have things much worse off than you. So I think that that's right, that, you know, you have basically 
leftist student activists who are campaigning for a world where you're not so dominant as you would have been a generation ago. And I think that to those guys, yeah, there's a sense of powers being taken from them. That seems like oppression, um, you know, that they're not used to dealing with having, having to not be taking for granted their privilege in a way. And I think that that's a loss that they want to, you know, lash back at the people who've taken that feeling away from them. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. How much do you think the nature of YouTube politics is simply algorithmic? The, I mean, other people have commented on the way in which YouTube algorithm seems to take you from wherever you are to a more extreme place than that. You know, if you're looking at vegetarianism, you're going to end up at veganism. At, at you know, running, you're going to become a ultra marathoner. I mean, this is Zainab Tufechi's point. And, you know, I, politics takes the form in some ways of the mediums it's on. And, you know, is some of what we're seeing here, this extremism, this kind of conflictual nature, is this an algorithmic decision by YouTube that maybe really is changing the audience, but does not reflect the only way the audience can be? And if the algorithm worked in a different way or was structured in a different way, maybe all this would just be a lot calmer or there'd be more space for people to see humanity in each other or something better than what we're ending up in? Well, the algorithm is kind of a great mystery. No one fully understands it, including these people who work at YouTube. So I don't know what, what conscious decisions, if any, led to you know the way it's wor- it currently works, the way it worked two years ago. But do I think that the YouTube algorithm played some role in making content more extreme? Yeah, I do. Because I think that undeniably, that's the way this worked back in 2016, 2017. Anyway, I remember you would watch content from someone like... Um, Oh, this, uh, you know, girl shoe on head was the name of the channel. And it was kind of just like Mimi, jokey, like, lol, look at this stupid example of Tumblr feminism, you know, this kind of thing that would appeal to like a pretty large percentage, I would think of like, you know, 
16 to 24-year-olds. But then after that, you start getting recommended like Stefan Molyneux talking about anti-feminism or Black Pigeon Speaks talking about how women destroyed the West. And it's like, whoa, we've just gone from laughing at Tumblr feminism to women are destroying the West. We need to reinstate traditional masculine whiteness. Like, uh, you know, that's a pretty steep drop that we've just gone on. And I remember watching, you know, just watching this kind of thing happen in my own YouTube browsing experience. It seems there that part of the issue is that irony has begun to play this very strange role where you get into something and initially it's pretty innocuous and then it's getting edgier, but it's ironic edgy. I mean, it's, you know, nobody really means what they're saying. And if you think they do, I mean, you're just a prude. And then soon enough, you're just really there. <laughs> soon enough, it's not ironic at all. And, and it's really hard because, uh, you know, it's very hard for anybody to intercede in that process because that middle part is immune to criticism. That middle part is so shapeshifty um, through the many, many, many layers of irony that you can never tell what's going on. And by the time something is clicked into place, it's often uh, like too late to really do anything about it. That this seems to me to be a thing that that people really just don't quite know what to do with. Like this kind of hyper ironic discourse just becomes incredibly difficult to expose to any kind of scrutiny or any kind of intervention. And it's, of course, like completely mis you know, poorly understood by anybody who's not already deeply within it. Yeah. The problem, as I see it, is that most people just don't, don't understand how like extremist political groups work. They don't understand how like white nationalists operate and the way they exploit irony and the ambiguity of it to get their message out in a way that you know protects them from criticism or protects them from censorship. Um, what basically my advice to, for, for detecting it is like if a person like is making a lot of the kind of ironic jokes that seem like sort of like, you know, that are sort of like adjacent to the ones that, you know, white nationalists would make, like, and they're not also regularly saying things that would really anger white nationalists, then they're kind of suspect. Like, I, cause I've made, you know, I do edgy humor to myself, and, but, and I've made jokes that, like, yeah, like an edgy Nazi could have made, um, but, you know, it's adjacent to, to basically constantly condemning them and exposing them and in the strongest possible terms right whereas you have these like sort of like you know politically centrist kind of entertainers on youtube and gaming or whatever else and they are just you know they're doing the ra ironic racist jokes um and they are sort of may even be laughing along with creators who are, are doing it not ironically but they sort of don't understand how helpful they're being to far-right extremism. Do you think we're just in a messy lag period? And, and, I, and I mean it in this way. So oftentimes when you have a, a new platform emerge, for a while, just it's Wild West, right? There's no gates, no gatekeepers. Everybody's trying to figure everything out. Things get really extreme. And then over time, people begin to succeed in it. And as they succeed in it, they develop, you know, gates themselves. Um, they develop audiences. They have advertisers. They have other kinds of partnerships. And and the walls come up a bit. And so you were talking at the beginning about how it almost feels like this fight between fascism and communism. But is it just going to be a situation where we're just going to watch it all professionalize into something that is more coherent and more gated? I mean, in some ways, you might say like the, the like the folks who are trying to cut out this intellectual dark web community, you know, a Ben Shapiro, a Sam Harris, a Jordan Peterson, etc., you know, they they for the most part 
they have reputational incentives that they want to be careful with. And, you know, they're trying to professionalize out a kind of version of this right that, you know, doesn't go, I think, to some of the really, really dark places, or at least hopefully doesn't go to some of the really, really dark places. And, you know, I think that, you know, there's probably been a little bit more of that on the left already, but 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 it could happen there too. And so are we just in a kind of weird period before everybody kind of submits to their own commercial incentives. And, you know, as you say, PewDiePie gets into trouble, but he's like also trying to get himself out of trouble now because he has a lot to lose. And so maybe the extremism of it all is just a, it's a side product of a period before the key players have enough incentive to to police any boundaries. But already we're beginning to see the the, the erection of those boundaries. Like, do, do you think that's possible? I think that's the trajectory we're on, yes. I think that, yeah, eventually things will get more moderate. Capitalism is really incredible. And one of its most ingenious innovations is that people who wander too far from its ideology, its most talented critics it can bring back into the fold by simply offering financial incentives to become more moderate. Um, so that that applies to, you know, anyone who's advocating for anything truly unstable is sort of going to be, you know, as you say, advertisers distance themselves. It's going to become damaging in terms of reputation, in terms of profit. And that's, you know, a lot of creators care about reputation and care about profit. So that's going to be a moderating influence. Of course it is. And then I think that a lot of these platforms are getting, you know, kind of hip to this extremist thing, you know, a few years too late, of course, but they're starting, you know, people like Milo Yiannopoulos have been kicked off most of these platforms. And I think that, you know, there's the gatekeeping. There it is. Where, where where was it when we needed it? But now it's back. And I think that I absolutely do expect, um, you know, online commentary to become, as you say, a little bit more professionalized. I mean, look at like beauty YouTube as like an example of where this has already happened. Um, you know, it starts out with just like a girl in a bedroom showing you how she does makeup, reviewing products, um, you know, then suddenly, oh, all the, you know, companies that, you know, the companies that make makeup, like, they realize this is a gold mine, this is advertising. So they start sponsoring these, you know, beauty gurus. And then now the reviews are, you know, sometimes paid content. And then a few of them get huge. Well, now there's, they start their own line of products. And then you have, you know, maybe 10 of these people who all are selling their own products, but they, you know, are selling them for the big companies that were already there. And then they're reviewing each other's products. And they're, they're you know, they're basically, they may as well be incredibly talented incredibly famous salespeople at a certain point. And, you know, with you, with, with politics, it's not going to be salespeople, but it's going to be commentators in the way that, like, you know, MSNBC has, like, Rachel Maddow or Fox News has Sean Hannity. Well, you're going to have that just on YouTube. I absolutely think that's the direction this is all headed. Are you comfortable with the role the platforms are being pushed to play in terms of actually saying this person shouldn't be here anymore? There should be no Alex Jones or Milo Yiannopoulos um, on here. Uh, you know, do you trust Susan Bajicki or Jack Dorsey or whomever to make these decisions? No, I don't. And I am uncomfortable with it. And it's, it's a complicated position to be in because on the one hand, like, is the world better if Alex Jones is not on the internet? No doubt. <laughs> but does it worry me, this precedent that like a, you know, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Apple can all decide, you know what, this person who has polit political opinions that are uh, too far gone, like they're just gone from the pu from public discourse. 
uh, well, it's great that as long as it's just Alex Jones, but what if it's not just Alex Jones? Um, I don't know. Uh, that that that's something in the back of my head that does worry me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about this a little bit where it could come in on the left, right? I mean, we were talking a couple minutes ago about capitalism and I think an Alex Jones is one thing. I think that he was so far outside the boundaries of what people are comfortable with as a just kind of pure conspiracy theorist that it's a real, relatively easy case. But I think the harder case is the place where the platforms seem to me to have responsibilities within the algorithm. Um, you know, they, it's not so much about banning, but it's about who gets promoted. And the idea that, you know, just like the most extreme voices consistently get the most promotion is, is a real problem. Um, but there are a lot of kinds of voices that you could argue um, from reasonable perspectives that you don't want to see going up in the algorithm. And so the more they begin to fine tune this stuff, you know, the more you begin to see things that you think are not that bad, that you think are just a challenge to a dominant paradigm that requires challenge, they, they get knocked out. So on the one hand, you can see this in a very reactionary way, uh, you know, with folks on the right. But you could, you know, if the democratic socialist or bread tube left continues to strengthen, you could certainly imagine seeing the same kind of organizing going against, you know, quasi-communist on the left. Um, and so it just on the one hand, it feels to me like the 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 algorithm is a real place of culpability and responsibility. But on the other hand, you know, I'm just I'm very I'm very uncomfortable with people whose decisions I've not decision making I've not thought has been in any way good in the last 10 years, uh, being the answer yeah. with somehow making better decision making in the next 10. And I mean you to Google the like Twitter, like these are corporations. I don't understand why communists and anarchists don't think that they would be, you know, potentially targeted by, you know, why these companies are going to be friendly to them. I don't think they will be. So kind of going forward on this, if you've been listening to this and you're um, trying to trying to take this this space of politics more seriously, where should people start? Like they should they should watch your YouTube. But but what are some other YouTube accounts you might recommend for folks? Um, well, I guess first I'll, I'll sort of recognize my own little uh, community of creators, which includes people like me, H. Bomber guy, who does a lot of like media review with a left wing slant, um, Philosophy Tube, who does sort of philosophy videos, with, like often pertaining to left wing politics, uh, Lindsay Ellis, who does again media reviews sometimes with a feminist or left wing slant. Um, Sean and Jen, who does very sort of dry, sometimes funny deconstructions point by point of um, uh, far right videos. Um, you have the kind of people who are still going on the like feminist vlog world, Cat Black. You have um, channels like the Majority Report that are sort of left leaning talk shows. Um, I don't know how to recommend people getting into a leftist community because I find leftist communities really hard to be part of a lot of the time. Um, I mean, I was like, yeah, there's like the ContraPoints subreddit. I guess that's, that's, that's I, I spend some time there. It's fine. It's very centered around me, though. Uh, you know, there's left book, leftist Facebook, sort of mostly closed groups. Those are notoriously impossible to to have a good time and like it's just the mo the infighting is so vicious and so unpleasant. What about non-political YouTube? What are what are some things that people should go to to just see what see see what folks are actually paying attention to or see something creative? Uh, you know, it, it to your point, like I find it hard to find things in this space. So I'm I'm curious as somebody who knows it much better, just like what really impresses you? Are there places you take inspiration or you just love? Well, yes, there are. I mean, and it's, it's just totally 
going to vary, but because YouTube is gigantic, so whatever your interests are, there's going to be a YouTube part section devoted to it. So I love like trans women vloggers who talk about th those experiences because that's very pertinent to me. Um, I love a lot of these like makeup channels. Like I, I, I I'm making a video now that's um, about beauty, which is going to sort of engage with beauty YouTube in a way. And I got some of my aesthetic inspiration from ASMR channels. Um, ASMR being, I assume most people know what it is lately, but it's basically kind of, it's hard to just to, to exactly, there's a lot of argument about what it is, but basically it's a, it's like a sort of auditory art form where these artists create sounds that, and some people like stimulate this kind of response to an auditory stimulus where you have this like tingle up your neck. Other people get very uncomfortable by it, but basically it's a lot of whispering like this and kind of tapping on objects or rubbing fabrics and things like that. Um, and oftentimes there's a there's a sort of visual component to it too. So one reason why I say ASMR influenced my style is that a lot of ASMR YouTubers, unlike most other people on YouTube, were giving a lot of thought to lighting, to makeup, costume, the, the you know, making the frame beautiful at all times. And so that sort of inspired, I was like, oh, I love the way these videos look. Like, I, want, I wish all vlogs looked like that. And that's sort of why, that's sort of one of the motivations for the visual appearance of my videos. What's one ASMR account people might check out? Oh, I was always, I've always been such a fan of Heather Feather. I haven't checked in on Heather Feather in a while. I don't know if she's done new videos lately, but her archive is incredible. Natalie Wynn, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Natalie for being here, to all of you for being here, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA.